The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. It can be found on pages 1 and 2 in the Black Bibles. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to watch the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Corbin. Great pronunciation of Delium. That was magnificent. Um, Thank you all for being here. My name is John Trapp. I'm senior pastor at Christ King, and it really is a joy to to have you with us, particularly if this is one of your first times visiting us. I just want to say welcome. Uh, It's an honor to have you here. We hope that we can make your time with us as uh, hospitable as possible. Um, It's great to have you. Um, Let's come to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us now as we study his text. Father, pray to you now and we come before you with fear and trembling. And Lord, in in light of all that has transpired in our nation and even in our state this past week, Lord, we ask you how long? How long, O Lord? Father, you who love justice, who 
who have regard for children, for the defenseless. Father, we ask that you would be their defender. Lord, would you be a comforter now? Would you comfort those who are mourning? We pray for your churches in Uvalde. Um, Lord, we ask that your hand particularly would be on them as they embody your comfort and love to a mourning town. We pray for First Baptist Church, First Presbyterian Church, St. Philip's Episcopal, First United Methodist, Sacred Heart Catholic, Risen Community Church, Redeeming Grace Fellowship, and many others. And we ask that your presence would bear itself out through them, that they would be your body. And Lord, we also pray for our leaders, for the leaders of our city, our state, our country, and we pray that you would give them great wisdom in governing. And we ask that you would um, help us here at Christ the King to be faithful participants in the work that you're doing in this world. We look to you. You are our help. You are where our help comes from, the maker of heaven and earth. We look to you now. We ask that you would help us. Help us now as we consider these words that you've given to us. And we pray that you would help us to see our need for you and your gracious provision of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking today about the subject of work. And um, I think it's actually a really important important topic and one that uh, runs all throughout the pages of scripture. And I want to frame this morning though with, asking you a question, how would you answer if someone asked you, what's the story of the Bible about? What would you say? What's, what's, what's the story of the Bible about? And my suspicion is that many of us would answer that it's something like, well, God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. And that's a great answer. That, that, the Bible is about that. But I, I want you to consider, what if that's not all the story, even though that is so central to the story, it's absolutely necessary. What if the story, what if we zoomed the lens out a little bit and the story was, was a bit more grand than that? Think about it this way. If, if you were to ask one of your kids, what's the story of Little Red Riding Hood about? They might, they, they could say, well, the friendly woodsman saves Little Red Riding Hood. And that would be true. But the story of Little Red Riding Hood is grander than that. You can zoom the lens out a bit and you see that there's actually one who sends Little Red Riding Hood, mom, with a mission. Little Red Riding Hood has this mission, cookie delivery. Y'all remembering this now? And then there's an enemy who stands in Little Red Riding Hood's way, the big bad wolf. And it's only after the enemy has taken Little Red Riding Hood that the savior comes into the story, the friendly woodsman, who restores Little Red Riding Hood and enables her to complete her mission. Now, what if I told you that that's actually a bit more like what the Bible is about? God sends people into the world as his image bearers in Genesis 1 and 2, and he gives them a mission. He gives them a mission 
to bear his image to the world. And we're gonna get to the enemy here in Genesis three in a little bit, right? But it's a, it's a grander story. And here's why I think it's important for us to recognize this. If the Bible is really just about God sent Jesus to save you from your sins, Christianity becomes super individualistic and really just about you and your get out of hell free card. And the other thing with that is like, once you get your get out of hell free card, what do you do for the rest of your life? Just kind of wait until you die? I honestly remember thinking that question as a kid sitting in church. All right, like I got the card, now what? Honestly, if you, if you got the card and you're just kind of sitting around wondering what to do next, it's kind of, like Christianity can seem boring. I wonder if some of you are showing up here this morning kind of bored with the Bible. What I, what I want us to do is to reimagine the story a bit and see that it's actually much bigger and it's actually really exci- exciting. Because the story that we find, that we think that we're in actually shapes us. The, an article caught my eye in the Wall Street Journal last year, <clears throat> and it said that there was a study done at um, City College in New York by a professor of biomedical engineering, and they were analyzing the way that narrative shape us, narratives shape us even on like a biological level. And so they had people in a room kind of connected to, I don't know, sensors or whatever, watching movies, watching stories together. And listen to what uh, one, of the, one of the professors said. This is Lucas Parr. He says, the fluctuations of our heart, are, the fluctuations of our heart rates are not random. It's the story that drives the heart. There's an explicit link between people's heart rates and a narrative. So what they observed is that as these people were watching a story together, these separate people, their heart rates started to sync up together and would ebb and flow with the narrative of the story. And that's a little bit what God is doing with us with the Bible, is he's giving us a story that we can sink our hearts to. And we sink our hearts with him, with our missional God who sends his people into his world to bear his image. And so my question for you is like, what, what story are you part of? Um, is, it, is it an individualistic kind of, just Jesus and me story, or could it be something much bigger, much grander, much more exciting? So three things I want us to look at. First, a working God. Second, his working images. And then third, a blessed beginning. A working God, his working images, and a blessed beginning. So what we see first in, uh, or in uh, at least with this, subject of work is that God himself works. It says it three times in the opening um, chapter of Genesis 2 that God, he worked, he worked, he worked. Um, That when there's no man to work the ground in verse 5 of chapter 2, in verse 8, God himself rolls up his sleeves and plants a garden. He is a God who works. And I want you to remember the original audience of the book of Genesis, it's people who are leaving 400 years of slavery who, who would have had a very complicated relationship with work, who maybe would have felt that, like denigrated by all the, the, the work that they had been forced into. And what's, what's being done here is they're, 
their imagination of work is being redeemed. Because they're being told that you, you bear the image of God, which would have been a completely radical idea. We talked about that last week. That male, female, old, young, you bear the image of God and he's a God who works. He's a working God. And we saw this when we looked at Genesis 1, the kind of work that God is doing. So I want you to just a brief review. In Genesis 1, 2, we see that the cosmos are, it's tohu bohu, meaning, that's the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word's meaning tohu, chaotic or formless. Bohu, empty, void. Tohu, bohu. And so all throughout Genesis 1, God is fixing the emptiness part, the chaotic, I'm sorry, the chaotic formlessness of creation and the emptiness of it. So days one through three, where there is formlessness and chaos, God creates form and the dwelling places. Day one makes the heavens with light and dark. Day two, sky, sea. Day three, land. Makes form where there's formlessness and chaos. But then on days four, five, and six, he fills what he has formed. So where there are sky, where there's the heavens, now he has sun, moon, stars, filling that form. Where there are skies and sea in day, five, in day two, day five, he fills the skies and seas with birds and animals. Day six, where he's now brought form to the land, he fills it with creatures, the animals, and people. And so Genesis 1, we said, is a narration in, in like song or poetic form of what God does in forming and filling this world. And I want to do a, like a brief, like apologetic moment with you about Genesis 2 because I was a campus minister for seven years. I'd have students every once in a while ask me like, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 conflict. Like, why should we trust them? There's, there's parts about the, the different stories that conflict with each other. But if we understand the genre in which these are written, it makes total sense. Genesis 1, re- it really does, it reads like a poem or a song. And so we read it that way. Genesis 2 reads more like a granular narrative. This is what, this is more specific of kind of like what happened. And we, when I first heard someone explain that to me, I was like, that's the easy way out. Yeah, <laughs> so, oh, how convenient, right? But, we, we do this with all other kinds of literature. This is like not uncommon for us. We need to treat a genre the way that it's meant to be treated by its author. We do this in, in Exodus 15, when, which is right next to the chapter in which, uh, Exodus 14, in which God destroys Egypt and the, the Egyptian army and the chariots that, that chase Israel into the Red Sea and the, the sea collapses over them and drowns them. The next, the next chapter is a song describing what's happened, much like Genesis 1 is describing God's creation in song form. In Ex- but when we read in Exodus 15, at the blast of your nostrils, the water is piled up. We don't anticipate that like nostrils appeared blasting the water. Maybe, oh, maybe you did. It'd be kind of crazy, but... We, don't, we, we treat it as the genre that it is. And I say all of that 
Because Genesis 1 and 2 are important to stand together because what we see Genesis 2 doing is it's borrowing from Genesis 1 imagery of God forming and filling. Genesis 2 is still showing us that the kind of work that God does is he forms and he fills. So Genesis 2 verse 7, God forms Adam out of dust. It says he forms Adam out of the dust. And then what does he do once he's formed Adam out of the dust? He fills Adam with the breath of life, forms and fills. Verse eight, God forms a dwelling place for Adam, this garden called Eden. And then in verse nine, after he's formed Eden, what does he do with it? He fills it. He fills it with all kinds of trees bearing all kinds of fruit that are good for food and pleasing to the eye. He, he fills it with beauty. He didn't have to make the trees pretty, he did. He fills it with beauty. He forms and he fills. See, God's work is a work of generosity, of of making a place that is habitable and then filling that habitable place with life, with beauty, with things that point us to him. This is who this working God is. And then second point, he makes working images. His working images. Um, in the ancient Near East, the way that a king would establish himself in a place, because you know, he couldn't, you know, maybe couldn't keep his eye on this land that he's conquered, he would leave an image of himself in that place to represent his presence and his authority over that place in the ancient Near East. And this is what God is doing except his image is not made out of wood or stone, but he makes flesh and blood images to represent his authority and his presence in the world. And he calls these flesh and blood images to do what he's just done, which is to go to work, get to work. Verse 28 of chapter one. What has God just done? He's made people. Now what does he tell them to do? Make people. Be like me. Start working like I do. In fact, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. There's that word again. Fill. Fill the earth. Do the kind of things that I've been doing. And then what's the next job he he gives them? Subdue the earth. Have dominion over all the creatures. Bring form to this place, make it habitable, form and fill, be like me to the world. Do you know how radically different this would have sounded to the Israelites who've been slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years? That now they're being told, you bear the royal image of it. You're not a slave, you're an image bearer of the king. And you're his child. And he welcomes you into participating in his work forming and filling. Theologians call um, 1 verse 28 the cultural mandate. That God is commanding them, mandating that they would create culture. Because think about it. How would they subdue the earth? You gotta learn about it. You can't, you know, if if you're gonna start farming, you maybe should start learning about like horticulture and biology and zoology. And you're probably gonna have to throw some chemistry and physics in there, sorry. Right. 
you gotta start learning about this place that I've made so that you can participate in the work. See, sometimes I, I think I have, have thought about work as like a result of the fall when I was a kid. Like, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be sitting here in school working at this test if Adam hadn't sinned. Thanks a lot, Adam. Right? But what we see here is that, kids, actually, we'd, you'd still be in school even if Adam hadn't sinned. Because there'd be a lot to learn and a lot to grow in and participating in bringing form to God's world and filling it with his light and life and beauty. And what that means is like every job that is represented in this room, whether you are a stay-at-home parent or a first grader or a private equity investor or a teacher or a janitor or a mailman or a banker, every single job that is represented here is one in which we participate in bringing form to the world, making it habitable, filling it with beauty and life and light. That's what we're called to do as Christians. It's what we're called, it's what God calls his people to do here, called to bless the world. But we distort this, don't we? Rather than seeking to fill the earth with life and beauty, often we, we look to get as much out of, as we can out of it, to empty it for our own profit, empty others' lives or their, own bank, or their bank accounts with a, a deal that maybe is way better for us and we know is not gonna be for their good. We, we seek for our own glory. It's one of the things that leads us to workaholism, to working all the time. The United States actually leads the developed world now in the smallest, the fewest amount of vacation days taken in the entire developed world. We take the fewest. We work the most. We work 120 hours per year more than Britain. We work 300 hours more per year than France and 400 hours more per year than Germany. Like if the Germans are working a 50-hour work week, they still get like eight weeks off more than we are taking. That's a lot of time. Why do we do this to ourselves? Well, I think it's because for many of us, rather than living in God's story, we're living in the story of our own self and looking to create our own identity in our work, our own glory in our work. Erin Callan, who at one point, uh, she was at one, at one time known as the most powerful woman on Wall Street when she was the CFO of Lehman Brothers in 2007 and 08, she said, I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. First, I spent a half hour on Sunday organizing my email, to-do list, and calendar to make sure Monday mornings were easier. Then, I was working a few hours on Sunday. Then, I was working all day. My boundaries slipped. It slipped away until work was all that was left. 
Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. What I did was who I was. Do you hear how this distorts God's image bearers? That we would reduce ourselves into what we simply do? That's what Israel had been feeling for hundreds of years. They were slaves, simply there to do and to work. That's all that they were there for. But we are welcomed into reimagining that we are made for something more. Something more than our own stories. Something more than our own glory. And one of the ways that God hints at this is how he starts off their work. Think about it. Day six, they get a pretty big to-do list. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. That's, they, they hear that on day six. They go to sleep. Day seven, they wake up. It's their first full day with all of their to-do list. And what are they told to do on their first day? Rest. Rest. Because your hope is not in what you do. Your hope is more than anything. Your hope is in what I've done for you. I've given you Eden. Rest here. Before you go and try to Edenize the cosmos, which is the call. The call is to make the cosmos like Eden. Formed and filled with life. Before you start doing that, you must rest and remember that your hope is not in what you do but in what I've done for you. And this, resting in this, actually begins to change the way that we work. Because now we don't have to work for our own glory. We get to work for his glory. And working for his glory actually brings about in us faithfulness, which is God's aim for us. God's aim for you is not your fruitfulness. He's in charge of your fruitfulness. His aim for you is your faithfulness. He's the gardener, right? What happens if you're a gardener, like plant a seed, then you gotta wait, right? It takes a while. Our job is to be faithful, to, to, to be like our gardening God, planting seeds, but waiting for him, asking for him, depending on him to bear the fruit. This changes the way that we work. And it makes, you know the other thing it does? It makes all work meaningful, Every single job represented in this room is meaningful. If you're retired, you're not retired from this. You still have a job to do of forming and filling the world with God's glory and beauty. It's meaningful work. Um, I've I've told y'all before about my seminary professor named Sinclair Ferguson. He was the most impactful professor that I had when I was in seminary and he told us a story about how he became a Christian. And I, I wish I could do it in his awesome Scottish accent, but I can't. But he, <clears throat> he said that when he was 15 years old, he was sitting in church and a man came and gave his testimony. And this, man, this man's testimony was that when he was working as a journalist in the 40s, 
in London, he would often walk past the typing pit. The typing pit was where you know, these, there were three women who were working there. They were stenographers typing the notes from their boss to, uh, to kind of begin whatever news article was being written. And this man would walk past the typing pit every day and he always noticed that there was somebody in there who just worked faithfully. He could always hear their typewriter just typing. And he'd been at this job for a couple months and he's walking past the typing pit with his boss and he kind of remarks about that one stenographer who's just always in there faithfully typing. Not frenzied, but also faithfully. He says, what's with with that, that one stenographer? And the boss just kind of dismissively says, oh, that's Mary, she's a Christian. And they keep walking, but that that statement kind of wedged itself in this man's mind and he began to think, how could something that you believe about God actually be so impactful that it, it it would make you faithful in your everyday life and the way that you work? And that seed kind of just got in him and germinated and became fruit. And he became a Christian. And so he shows up, at Dr. Ferguson's church and tells this testimony. And Dr. Ferguson, 15-year-old Dr. Ferguson, sitting in the congregation, and he hears this man talking about Mary. And Dr. Ferguson became a Christian. And I'll never forget sitting in the classroom and Dr. Ferguson kind of gets misty-eyed as he's telling us this, this story. And he says, and I can't wait to meet Mary in glory and thank her for faithfully working as unto the Lord for his glory, because of what he has done for her. I can't wait to thank her. And think of all that God has done through that lady's faithful work. I mean, now you're hearing about her, right? You never know how God will take our faithful labor and make it fruitful. Because he gives us his blessing, that's where our hope is from. So the last point is the blessed beginning. Um, I just had never noticed this. I love when you're reading a passage that you're familiar with, you know, and, and you just kind of notice, notice something that you've never noticed before. And it's just, it's not, it's not that uh, crazy. It's pretty obvious. But in verse 28 of chapter one, before God gives them all these jobs to do, he blesses them. And that is just God's pattern. All throughout the Bible, before he gives us a job to do, he blesses us. Before he gives, before he gives Israel the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, you know what he does in Exodus 19? He blesses them. He tells them that they're his treasured people, they're, they're his holy nation, that, that he loves, he pours out his love upon them. And only then, only after he's saved them, after he's doted on them and blessed them, then he calls them to the work of obedience. That's always God's pattern. And we always think it's reverse. That, you know, if we, if we start doing things right, then he'll save us. But that's not what, he doesn't come to Israel and Egypt and say, get your stuff together and then maybe I'll save you from Egypt. He leads with blessing. He begins with blessing. And so he puts them in Eden. 
He puts, he, he blesses them. He gives them, he gives them the Eden starter pack, right? All the food they're gonna, they need, the life they need. And he says, now go and be a blessing. Go and be like me to the world. Participate, you get to participate in my work. But as we know in their sin, in their sin, Adam and Eve don't only fill God's world with beauty and life, but also with brokenness and sin and evil. And we still are living in the shadow of that, are we not? But our hope is that there is a savior. That King Jesus set aside his crown and went to work. He's working God. In John 4, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus came and he went to work. He went to work as a son of a carpenter and he went to work to save us and was hung on a wooden cross. The most humble work that you could imagine. Jesus went into it to restore anyone who would believe in him and in his work rather than in their own. He restores us and then he welcomes us to participate in his work. And that is gonna be exciting. It is exciting. And we get to be part of it for eternity. I wanna to read to you from Revelation 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse three and five. What will we be doing for eternity? Working. Listen. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. God's throne here on earth, the new heavens and new earth made right. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Maybe sounds kind of weird. The high priest had his, the name of God on his forehead. And because he had the name of God on his forehead, he could have intimate relationship with God. That's the kind of imagery that's, that's being used. Intimate relationship with God, his name on their forehead. But what will, we, what will we be doing? They will need no light of lamp or of sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The Bible ends with us getting restored to the royal work of forming and filling. We get restored to that work. So for eternity, what lies before us is worshiping our God as we discover more of who he is as he's revealed himself in this world that he will make new and then call us to reign over, to form and to fill, to participate in. I think we're gonna discover really cool things. And as we do that, we'll glorify him and worship him. You know what? You will not, I remember someone asked me one time, like, will I just like make every shot in golf? Will it be a hole in one every time? It sounds like a bummer. You won't. The Bible says, but the Bible doesn't say that you will be perfect at everything in the new heavens and the new earth. You will be perfectly sinless, but you won't be perfect at everything. But you know what? You'll have an eternity to get better at golf, which some of you need, I've played with you. And I need it too. You will have an eternity to get better. And as you do, you know what? You'll praise him for what he's made, for what he's invited you into participating in. His work 
We get to be part of it. You want to be part of a story that's bigger than your own? You want to be defined by more than just your work? Do you want to have your work be deeply meaningful and participate in something that will last for eternity? This is what God is holding out to you. He welcomes you into it. So let's do it together with his help, for his glory, for the good of our neighbor, for the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for who you are, for how you've revealed yourself to be, that you went to work for our salvation and that you offer us an invitation into participating in your work now. And we pray that you would help us to do that with faithfulness. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.